Hello, everyone. Kay here. This is H, and we're spilling all the art and architecture secrets you thought we'd never tell. Well, it's officially October. Yeah. At least it will be when the podcast comes out. And I think we're both thrilled despite oh. COVID. Like this is favorite month of the year. And I mean, from October, it's basically Christmas and New Year's. And it, I mean, in that respect, like goodbye 2020. So this is the beginning of the end of this shitty year. And I couldn't be more pumped. Not that I believe 2021 will just magically get better, but I'm going to fully pretend that that's true. And I'm also going to fully lean into like, like I consider from September to December, just like one big holiday extravaganza. Oh, Um, for sure. I like always decorate for fall, like a month early. And I always decorate for Christmas, like, like November 1st. And guys, she has boxes of decorations, literal boxes. Like in fact, and she lived in a tiny little one-bedroom apartment in Boone, which, like, of course, that's what we all did, college. And I'm over there one day, and she just, like, there are boxes everywhere. And then what What happens? We hear something moving in one of the boxes. Oh, <gasps> I and forgot about that. I know. I just have to think about it when you're talking about all your decorations. But literally, and I have the Snapchat stories, like, to prove that this actually happened. We're freaking out. I think it was, like, this may have been more in November, But I think it was, like, transition from fall to Christmas, like, of your decoration, like, swap. And we're sitting on your sofa, and then we're like, what is that scratching? Like, there is scratching coming from one of these many boxes. And, like, we thought it might be a rat, and we looked and looked and threw those boxes around and did your classic girly screaming, and we didn't see anything. I know. We dragged one of them out. Like, we pinpointed. We're like, it's got to be this box right here. And I have video footage of us, like, barefoot in the middle of, like, Boone, chilly November, like, getting into winter. Us, like, dragging this box out at, in the middle, like, it was nighttime. I don't know how, it wasn't, like, late, but it was nighttime, and there was nothing. Like, we did not find anything. You've got to send me those. That's hilarious. (laughs) But that did happen. And that's like one of my fond memories of Kay and her holiday decorating is the maybe mouse that was, you know, traveling along. Maybe mouse or honestly, most of my decorations um, come from my grandmother who was Mrs. Christmas. And um, I have all of her Christmas decorations. In fact, like I now have a full storage unit of nothing but just like head to toe, like whole room is filled with Christmas boxes. I haven't even gone through to see what all I have now, but a lot of that stuff is like very old, very vintage. Maybe we were being attacked by some haunted ornament or something. (laughs) I don't know, but you know what? Right now it's spooky season. And so um, there's plenty of hauntings going on, you know? I, uh, since I was a young child. (laughs) I have loved scary things, haunted things, creepy things, spooky things. Like that is what I live for. And these episodes that we're doing right now, like this, I am so pumped to make you guys aware. If you don't know, we're jumping fully in 
to spooky season. And the whole month of October will be dedicated to just the spooky and the scary and the creepy and the things that we just love in art and architecture. Oh, yes. I, as I already said, I'm absolutely thrilled. I think I put more effort and more just like passion behind the research for this episode than I have so far. Not that I don't love the topics that we've already talked about, but like I said, like spooky stuff is my shit. So I'm just really excited. Well, and in fact, uh, we have a tradition of spending Halloween together. This is very important to both of us and our friendship. Everyone was so excited at the end of last year because they were like, Dude, 2020 Halloween is on a Saturday. It's going to be so lit. It's also um, daylight savings time. Is it ends or it starts? I don't know that. But you get an extra hour on Halloween because of daylight savings time, which happened like four years ago. I think that, no, it happened like five years ago because I remember like I was out on a Halloween and we got an extra hour. So people were like pumped because it's like not only is it on a Saturday, but we get an extra hour. And then COVID came came through and threw a wrench in our plans. I want to do something so bad. It hurts. But I suppose if nothing else, we will carry on our tradition by recording spooky podcast episodes. <laughs> and know, it, it, that that's enough for us. Yeah. I mean, at least we are getting to celebrate and we're getting to celebrate with a group of people that will listen to us, even if we can't go celebrate through dancing and drinking and partying like we would. Of course, I mean, we say that, but like realistically, would that happen? Who knows? This could have been our year. kicking off spooky season series that we are bringing to you guys. We are going to talk about creepy, spooky, scary, graphic, gory, gross artwork. Oh, you uh, hit the nail on the head there, H. (laughs) Thank you. You know, for all of the negative reactions that these pieces might invoke, people are really into it and it is not a new topic. It is not, you know, I think it's something that has been going on for many, many years in art. You know, I, I would say that like, as you started to get into the Renaissance, um, I mean, a lot of art was like religious, but I think people were sort of exploring like hell and, you know, Mm -hmm. like just like the darker iconography of religion. And you started to see some really fucked up stuff. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, and I love it and I love it. Yeah. It's very, I mean, even the art that I've seen that I've, that's like, you know, kind of left a sick feeling in my stomach, like, oh my God, that's disturbing. You know, at the end of the day, it's, I still remember it. It still stands out in my memory. And so it's definitely, you know, if art is there to leave a lasting impression on the viewer, like these certainly do. I agree completely. As Cesar Cruz, a Mexican poet once said, Art should comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. And I think the ones that we're talking about today probably fit that bill. Oh, definitely. I mean, and there are so many out there. We've picked a few um, that we personally have found disturbing or interesting. 
a few that honestly I never really heard of, but when I started kind of digging into this topic, I was like, wow, that's really fucked up. (laughs) And, you know, there's plenty more out there. Honestly, we could probably have a whole year's worth of shows on like creepy art because there is just so much of it. You know, I would say for every like happy painting, there's a, there's a like grotesque one Mm -hmm. to compliment it. So, um, you know, sh- shall, shall we dig in? Shall we start? I think we should. Cause you know, not only is it spooky season and it makes this topic appropriate, but also like people just sometimes have this idea that art is just pretty and romantic and maybe that's boring to them. But, uh, like you said, for as much art that's like that, there's just art that's trying to push the boundaries and like, um, explore the ugliness of reality and explore like, you know, the most visceral negative feelings and emotions and pain that humans can feel. And cool boy, some of it's quite, uh, quite creepy. Yes, it really is. But we're here for it. We're We're here here for it. it. And we're here to tell you about it. So let's talk about some of the depictions of like, human vices and sins and, you know, struggles and pain, observations of, of those kinds of things. Because I think that's the kind of art that we started to see pretty early on in art history was exploring just like the sins and the, the ugliness of, or the flaws of a human being. I would agree. I think a lot of this stems from like religious art and then starting to depict the darker side of that, the devil, um, sin, um, and, you know, just bringing that to life through art and also just showing how evil mankind can be and how mankind has always had an interest in the dark and the macabre and the devil. You know, I mean, there's always been that kind of, you know, good versus evil, (laughs) Well, I also think that it's kind of human instinct to rebel against the norm. And so even like early in art history, certain standards were set of like, here's what you see in art. You know, it, it's like um, the Virgin Mary and Jesus, or it's like landscapes or whatever. But artists, you know, art is there to kind of push the boundaries and to, um, you know, it's a commentary of what's going on in society. And so we see artists all the time throughout history, just trying to break free of that mold and say like, no, I'm, this is, this is art to me. This is how I'm truly going to express myself and stand out from that and um, speak to what I'm actually feeling because sometimes art gets too pretty and too nice and too maybe phony in that sense. And that it's just covering up like the darker side of, you know, human existence. Mm -hmm. And even though we can't, physically show you guys these pieces of art as we talk. Um, We'll post them on our Instagram um, and we'll post links to further reading in our show notes. Um, So wherever you get your podcast, check those out or check out our Instagram if you dare. (laughs) This is not for the faint of heart, folks. Oh no, caution. So one of the first examples where you really start to see this shift into, you know, creepy depictions of hell and, you know, the darker side of the human existence um, was probably with Hieronymus Bosch. 
who is my favorite artist, I think, of all time. I absolutely love him, um, which I don't know what that says about me as a person, but I'm just absolutely like obsessed with him. And I think it is because it's so creepy and it's so different. And it's just like there's some really weird shit in some of his paintings. Really weird. Like it's not even just creepy. It's truly just like what was this guy on when he came up with this and when he painted this. A lot of his works were in the um, like 1500s and even before that because he actually died in the in 1516. But even though he is super important to this whole movement, we are not going to talk about him yet. So stay tuned on that just because he is so important to me. <laughs> he deserves his own episode. <laughs> he deserves his own episode. And also we could probably dedicate a whole podcast just to Bosch. I mean, there's and so honestly much. just to the Garden of Earthly Delights in my mind. So much to unpack scenes. there. Yeah. And we will do it very, very soon. But for yes. now, let's do a broader overview of the spooky art throughout time. Yes. So I think one spooky artist that probably a lot of people could at least recognize one particular painting is Francisco Goya. Um, he was very much into this movement, especially in the kind of the second half of his life. Um, he had a whole series called like the black paintings and it's kind of up in the air and up to debate and discussion as to whether or not this was a result of him suffering some pretty serious health conditions um, that caused him to temporarily have like partial paralysis in his right side. Um, He also was partially blind for a while and he went deaf and actually stayed deaf. He never fully recovered from that. Um, It's kind of sort of, there's just a lot of speculation about what exactly happened, um, but he did so for a stroke um, during this. And, you know, it's kind of assumed that he never really fully recovered. Like, obviously we do know his hearing was gone, but I mean, that can really alter a person, especially an artist and, you know, how their view on the world, their, you know, internal thoughts and just how they are going to be able to continue living their life, losing these functions that are so important to people. Yes. But even more so to artists. Oh, right. I mean, his whole way of perceiving the world in order to express it was like permanently damaged, if not gotten rid of altogether. Um, But I would argue that his most iconic works and the ones that people remember today came from that period, even though interestingly they were in his own home and were not necessarily ever meant to be seen. That's very true. And I, I can't imagine like painting these, dark and and we'll get more into kind of describing them and telling you a little bit more about a few specific ones, but I just can't imagine painting works like this and then hanging them up in my house. And that's just like what I see. And this is the house that he lived out like the rest of his days. in. like, he lived in this house for the few years after his health issues until he died. And you know, that that's got to do something to a person, you know, that affects you in some way. Was it, comforting for him to get those internal feelings expressed outwardly or you know was it his way of putting some sort of ironic sense of humor about his state or was he just like suffering and pushing himself further into that depressive state I don't know but the works are not only iconic but they're truly uh 
frightening. I would say that even today you walk into a room full of Goyas and you're like taken aback. Like it's probably hard for some people to look at or, or they might really hate them or, or kind of just try to laugh them off, but they definitely evoke a reaction, a strong one. One of the most well-known Goya paintings is Saturn devouring his son. And even if you don't necessarily know what we're talking about by that name, if you see it, I'm sure that it would be widely recognized. Um, But basically it's based on the myth, the Roman myth about Saturn. Um, And I mean, this painting is just truly twisted. It shows this like horrifying, like, man who's oversized. He's got like stringy, creepy hair right in the middle of eating his son. I mean, it's, there's blood, there's gore there. He has these wide, like almost bulging eyes that are just terrifying. It's also very dark. Um, it is. The brush mm-hmm. strokes are very evident. They're kind of frenzied and haphazard. And um, just, I think the, really the only touches of color is like the blood you see and the color of his eyes. But his son is already partially dismembered. Uh, I think he's missing his head and, and mm-hmm. at least an arm. But the myth, like you mentioned from ancient Rome, um, and actually a version of it in ancient Greece as well, is that um, there was a time before the the pantheon of gods that they came to worship where the Titans who created the gods, uh, specifically Kronos or Saturn, um, tried to and succeeded in for a while um, devouring his children. So um, it's a really interesting thing to be depicting considering his state of mind. And I don't we can't really figure out why he chose that, but uh, ironically, it hung in his dining room. That's exactly what I'd like to look at um, while I'm eating my dinner. Yeah. I, I, f- I found this like description online. I think this just really il- illustrates like how detailed it is. So it says he's already torn off and eaten his child's head, the right arm, and part of his left arm. He's about to take another bite from the left arm. He is gripping the dead child so tightly that his knuckles are white and blood oozes from the top of his hands. Also thought that in the original um, like plaster painting that the god may have had a partially erect phallus, um, which just brings like another level of creepiness and just yuck. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like sex and death are quite often intertwined in art. Um, I personally am glad that did not make it into the final because (laughs) it's already creepy enough. And when we say child, like it is his child, but the body is of a, the body being eaten is of a full grown man. And so while, while that's not very helpful, he's not eating like a baby. Is that, are we... (laughs) know I just, that like, makes it okay that makes it fine <laughs> not that it makes it fine but I think like after seeing mother together I think, I think back I, to when we saw mother and the baby <laughs> thing which if you haven't seen mother I don't want to tell you the baby thing but just suffice it to say I think mother is a little more anything. disturbing 
the thing that strikes me the most about the Saturn painting is just the look on Saturn's face because it's obvious that he's like, you know, in the middle of consuming his child and he has this very monstrous look, but something about his face also just appears very haunted to me as if he's like aware of his own like monstrosity. Like he's just got this look on his face as if he was caught in the act or something. And I think that more than anything is what kind of gets to me, like disturbs me as he's like staring directly at the viewer as if we've caught him and he's sort of like aware of how monstrous he seems. I would agree with that. I mean, he's very like, it almost seems like the painting was like almost if it was a picture or a snapshot, it's like he was so like engrossed in what he was doing. And then something like drew his attention, like somebody called out or drew his attention. It's just this like wild look in his eyes that it just looks like he like pokes his head up and like, like almost like he was interrupted. That's exactly the vibe I get from it. And you know, Again, we can only speculate. It's possible that Goya was totally in his right mind and wasn't even painting this necessarily from his own suffering, just was, you know, kind of making these insane caricatures, like just pushing the boundaries as far as he could late in life. But, you know, it's also possible that he was just, and I would totally be in the throes of insanity if I was going through the struggles that he went through late in life. But, you know, it's almost as if, he could be depicting coming out of a breakdown or something, you know, it's like that mm-hmm. look on your face of sudden realization. Um, so it's just really, it just gets to you when you look at it. Mm-hmm. So remember that little fact that you were stating about how you felt better about him being a grown man and not a child. Okay. Uh, yeah. H, I, I remember that. Okay, well, let's take a look at another one of Goya's paintings that, um, yeah. So, Witch of Sabbath. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to make it better and I failed, obviously. So, <laughs> so Witch of Sabbath, um, which is also known as the Great He-Goat, is just a direct depiction of the devil um, who, as we know, like in art and just in writing, is often depicted as some type of like goat creature and in this particular painting um there is a witch who is handing an infant toward the devil um which plays off of the superstition that it was believed that the devil fed on children and human fetuses sorry guys i tried to make it better (laughs) i tried to make i tried to make goya more palatable by saying at least he's not depicting children being eaten but um I will also say that there are skeletons of the two other infants that can be seen in the foreground of the, or that can be seen in the painting. Um, so <laughs> he was painting some really dark shit. The goat has almost this like crown of ivy or plant, like a garland around his horns. Um, and there's all of these like women, witches kind of circled around him all like you could say praising him or admiring him might be a better term. Um, and when witchcraft is portrayed, um, a lot of things are inverted as of the way that they would typically be 
shown in a like religious painting. So the goat in this painting is reaching out his left hoof, where typically in like religious paintings, we see the right hand extended. Um, also the moon is typically shown on the right hand if you're viewing the painting and kind of facing the opposite way where this is mirrored and it's on the left and um, it's a crescent moon. And we'll obviously post this picture and you guys can kind of see um, what we're talking about. And there's also like a flock of bats flying in the sky, which just kind of adds like another level of just like creepiness. I would say this is also, um, you know, a lot of times we see God and Jesus depicted with the sun and the sunrise, and mm-hmm. this appears to be sunset. You see the moon and the stars and bats coming out, but you you see the last like blues and purples and yellows of the daytime sky falling behind the mountains. Um, and what interests me as well is, I don't know if Goya was necessarily trying to speak to any religious message. Um, but as H was saying, this obviously is subverting a typical religious, um, image as well as playing off mythology again, because, um, to me, this almost looks like depictions of like Dionysus or Bacchus, um, who are the Greek and Roman gods of like, honestly, like of like wine and partying and of good times. And then obviously the church, of course, like wanted to, show any paganism or heathenism as, you know, just terrible and bad. And so depictions of, you know, uh, Bakian rituals and things like that were often seen as like women being in hysteria and, you know, just totally entranced by this evil figure who often had a crown of laurels around his head. And so it's interesting too, that there's sort of that like Bacchanalian um, sort of motifs that you see in here. Yes, you could look at these and you could hear us talking about them and say like, okay, y'all, this is pretty fucked up. Why are we talking about this? Goya is pretty fucked up. Why are we talking about him? But the thing is, is like, if again, this was painted for a religious purpose, just as much as you want to depict God and Jesus and the Virgin Mary as these figures of light and you want to come to them and you want to be with them, you would want the alternative, i.e. Satan and hell to be as dark and as terrifying as possible. And I think if you're looking at something like this and saying like, oh, this is my alternative if I don't, you know, come to Jesus, literally, I think that would be enough to scare people into saying, oh, this sounds like the path that I should not. (laughs) The reasoning behind this is somewhat religious, but it's also more political. Um, It was kind of to sort of like stick it to the Spanish government at the time to kind of go against the values that were upheld during the Spanish Inquisition, um, where there were like, where there was actually like witch hunting going on. Um, and then also it wanted to show the struggle between kind of the like more conservative religious group and the liberals, um, during the ominous decade in Spain. Um, so it's basically just like attacking the like right wing ultra religious group during this time. Um, man, so this happened time and time again. (laughs) So definitely not something uncommon. I mean, we think of witches and like, ultimately they look like humans, they function as humans, you know, they call them witches, but these could just easily be showing like evil people. Right. And like at the time that he was painting this in the context, 
people probably would have associated this with the political landscape of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, just talking about art history throughout time, pre-Christianity, where art was based on pagan gods, more naturalistic images. And then, of course, like by the time the Catholic Church really spread and gained the influence that it had for so long, art was really mostly religious and mostly um, probably really confined to those subjects. And then so when people did depict hell and demons and the devil and things like that, it was unironically to say like, yes, this is not what you want to be around. Um, By the time that Goya existed, um, the late, late 1700s and the early 1800s, I would say any depictions were probably calling back to that history, um, but with a touch of satire, a touch of irony, and using those images for some political purpose, which is obviously, like you said, what Goya was doing there. But um, definitely, it's it's not just his fucked up mind acting out and doing the. You know, there's a reason behind these paintings, and it's it's a connection that's existed throughout art history. Right. I mean, he's he's doing this for shock value, but he's also like doing it for he's basically like sticking a middle finger up to like the politics in the country at the time and saying, you know this is ridiculous and you shouldn't be using people's fears to pressure them into like basically into being like these ultra religious, you know, he's basically saying that you shouldn't be using religion for political and like capitalistic gain. Right. Which it's despite the fact that it's 2020 and it's a couple hundred years later still seems timely. Very true. (laughs) Very true. So Goya was painting um, during the time of Romanticism, which sounds nice and pretty in rainbows, but that's actually where a lot of um, dark art and literature and things like that, uh, gothic literature like Mary Shelley and Edgar Allan Poe and things like that um, came out of. I think culture was starting to be a bit obsessed with Um, the supernatural and the darker sides of human existence. And so despite the name romanticism, it was sort of anything but. So what romanticism did actually refer to is just kind of hearkening back to neoclassicism um, and the Baroque. So these very beautiful idealized bodies who even in depictions of pain and suffering are posed quite beautifully, uh, very fluid, very dramatic, loose brush strokes and a strong color palette um, with really sharp contrast. This is calling back to classical art um, that we were romanticizing by this point in time. And so that's what they mean when they refer to romanticism, but it's not always happy and pretty and beautiful. And in fact, most of the time it is not. And another artist that was painting at that time was Fuseli, um, who also depicted some pretty scary things in his art. Um, Unlike Goya, as far as I know, I don't think there's any overt religious or political message, although that's up for speculation and debate. Um, But one of his most famous works is The Nightmare, which you may or may not have seen, but if you've looked into art history at all, it's probably familiar to you. Um, The Nightmare is from 1781, and it's a depiction of a sleeping woman um, who is draped in white, and she's laying sort of half off her bed, like her head's hanging upside down and her arms falling off the bed. And, um, it's quite a dramatic 
strange pose. Um, she's also the brightest spot in the room. The rest of it's quite dark. Um, but the most off-putting thing about this piece of art is that there's this ape-like demon sitting on top of her chest, directly on top of her chest, um, just in this crouched, strange, primal position. And his head is turned directly facing the viewer. He's got this sort of angry look on his face. And much like Saturn, it just seems like he's like staring directly at you um, as if he was caught in the act of haunting this woman. Um, and then to the left of the painting, just coming out of the darkness, you can sort of barely make it out, but is a horse um, that appears ghostly. It's a black horse, but its eyes are pure white. Um, its hair almost seems to be floating a little bit. And essentially what most people think is that this is a depiction of a nightmare. It's not overtly connected to any particular mythology, but there are stories in folk art of um, demons coming to haunt women in their sleep. Uh, most of the time, nightmares for men were depicted as horses. Um, but here we just see these common motifs of nightmares coming to haunt this woman. Um, and even if it was for no deeper reason than just to depict a nightmare, it is interesting to see something like that in art because it's frightening. Um, when it was exhibited, when it was first created, it definitely frightened its viewers. But just the the stare directly at the viewer's face is incredibly off-putting. I would definitely agree. I mean, and there's kind of like a contrast between this woman, as you said, like clothed in white, who's dramatically and almost like elegantly like draped like on this bed with her arms kind of like falling to the ground. And then there's this like imp like creature who just looks, he's like shadowy and like dark and just grotesque. And, you know, he's just sitting directly like on her stomach. And um, I think it's been kind of portrayed as like, is this an evil thing or could this even be a sexual thing? Yeah. Because actually in some of those folk stories, demons were coming and actually having intercourse with sleeping women. So, but what's also interesting about this piece is the fact that even as we get into the 1700s, the 1800s, and art becomes less religious, it's not always religious, it still often seemed that there was a moral to the story or that it was based on some mythology. It was based on some image that would have been well known to the public but this painting is just directly out of the artist's imagination he's like i want to depict a nightmare this is how i visualize that and here it is and so not only was it unique to see in an exhibit because of its disturbing appearance but it just also was a little bit different subject matter than the typical art of the day I would almost argue that, you know, we talked about Goya being kind of fucked up for painting these disturbing images, but at least he was drawing from stories, like, like existing ideas, religion, politics. I mean, it wasn't like he decided I'm going to have this devil eat an infant because 
that's what I'm into. But here there's really not much, I don't want to say there's no purpose behind it, but like, as you said, there's no like pre-existing story. It's potentially, yeah, it's potentially drawing from a folk story as far as like how the nightmares depicted. Um, But there's no, there's no moral here of like, don't fall asleep or the demon's going to get you. It's just like, or, you know, you have to be a good person or this is what's going to happen to you. It's kind of just like, Hey guys, this is what I think a nightmare looks like. <laughs> yeah. That's that's really interesting and very disturbing. And again, we'll post this picture to our Instagram. Um, so you guys can take a look and kind of just let us know what you think about this. Um, because it it's it's creepy. But that's that's what we're here to talk about. So we've kind of discussed you know, depicting things from mythology or religious stories. And we've kind of talked about just like the artists conjuring up these nightmare ideas just from their own mind. Um, I think next we go into an artist who drew from real people and from real tragedies that occurred. And that is the French artist Jericho. Um, he is best known for the raft of Medusa, which he painted when he was only 27 years old, which as someone who's only two years away from that, um, I feel like there's probably something wrong with me because I certainly (laughs) haven't accomplished anything like this. Um, and just the first thing to be said about this painting is it is huge. It is larger than life-sized. Um, it's absolutely massive. And it really shocked and freaked people out when it was put in a museum. Um, it's based on a real shipwreck that occurred. These people were stranded. And so they did resort to like cannibalism and brutalism. And it was really bad. Basically, this ship was destined to fail from the very beginning. The captain of the ship had not been on a boat in 25 years. And he had never commanded this type of ship before. And basically what happened is they started dragging along the base of the ocean floor. And so they started like throwing things overboard to try to lessen the weight on the ship. Well, that really did not work. And so the wealthy were given access to the lifeboats. Hello, Titanic. And were able to get off the boat. And then at some point, the other like 149 people got on this raft. And at some point it was cut loose and they were basically stranded um, for two-ish weeks. And a lot of bad stuff happened during that time. There was cannibalism, brutal killings, insane. I mean, I can't even imagine like being under those conditions. So there's this terrible tragedy about two years after this shipwreck. Um, Jericho decides to reveal this painting and he was very detail oriented and wanted to make sure that he got everything right. Um, so he, well, he got a lot of the information. I think there were a couple survivors. So he did get some information for them about like what actually happened on the ship. But then for the portrayal of the bodies, he actually went into hospitals and morgues and, took corpses to be able to position and study to know exactly what they would look like. Um, He even would let them decay in his studio. 
um, so that he could just continue to reference them. He even reconstructed a raft and set it out on like the open sea to where he kind of see exactly how it would be under these conditions. I just can't get over the fact that he actually used corpses and like kept and he dismembered them and kept them in his studio to use as reference while he was painting this. And as I said, this thing is fucking huge. So this is not something that he painted in a, a couple days. You know, mm, those corpses were not fresh. No. And I think that I would say that this painting is not as disturbing to look at as some of the others. I mean, obviously it's of a tragedy. You see the corpses, you see the faces, but a lot of the bodies are, some of them are still alive. Um, Both alive and dead are sort of turned away from you. It's not as overtly trying to be as haunting or shocking, but I think what makes it so hard to see is knowing the story behind it and I mean honestly props to him for trying to be as accurate as possible but the way he went about it I would say today is what we would find most off-putting oh I mean it's something that today you legally would not be allowed to do (laughs) (laughs) so it's I guess a good thing that this is happening you know back in the 1800s when there were much looser laws on you know borrowing corpses and dismembering corpses that you take from the morgue you know i feel like throughout art history that happened a lot and it is interesting how lax like an artist could just walk in and be like sup i want to paint some dead bodies can i borrow some and they'd be like sure here you go take an arm here's a head here's a whole cadaver just take what you want and they were like cool, just going to paint this in my studio. Like that happened frequently in art history. And that's very strange. Oh, I, people like, I think people are a little too comfortable with the dead. I mean, (laughs) I even think about like postmortem, like photographs of people. That's insane to me. Like just, there was a level of comfort, comfort with the dead that I just feel like we no longer have. (laughs) Yeah. They were pretty chill with it. You know, in the painting itself, there's there's almost like there's a very classical composition in which the people if you didn't know the story of the painting it's just sort of your typical dramatic poses and like writhing bodies but you might not necessarily be like oh these people are killing and brutalizing and eating each other um but it's a very classic composition they're on a raft you can see the stormy seas and the high waves in the background um storm clouds you can see that the raft is starting to come apart and that waves are splashing overboard some of the bodies you see falling off the raft some of the people who are still alive you can see reaching and waving a flag as if they might potentially spot someone who's going to save them. The person that stands out the most to me is a man who's still alive. He's sitting down, but he just has his head in his hand and he's just staring off into the distance as if he's just like well and truly given up. Like he has seen so much that he's just beyond the point of reacting to it anymore. I mean, I can't imagine being in this position. And I mean, just the fact of like 149 people being like shoved on this raft together. I mean, that alone is anxiety inducing. So then being stranded in the middle of the ocean for two weeks. I mean, I cannot even imagine just like beginning to end the story behind this, the story during painting this, this is, it's creepy. 
which is why, like you said, even though it might not be the most disturbing image out of like what we're talking about this episode, it deserves a place here. Some of the best art comes out of artists trying to convey their own struggles and pain and, um, or, or how they look at the world and sort of, you know, that whole tortured artist trope. But really, I mean, seeing how they view the world and how they express their pain has created some of the most iconic art. Um, and I think a good example of that is Francis Bacon, who we're getting more modern now. Um, Francis Bacon lived in the 20th century. He died in like 1992. But um, his most famous works arguably is his Pope series, which was based on um, Velasquez, who was an artist in the 1600s, um, his portrait of Pope Innocent X. So just like Raft of Medusa calling back to Baroque and neoclassicism, and just like Witches' Sabbath calling on religious convention and um, mythological motif, um, Bacon is pulling from art history in his series, despite the fact that it's more modern. Um, and throughout his life, he actually created several variations of this portrait, but all of them are incredibly scary and dark and disturbing. And for me, they're hard to look at. The first one I ever saw was his figure with meat, which is a depiction of the Pope, but he's very dark and macabre and he looks tortured and he's very pale and doesn't look entirely human. And then there's these two hanging carcasses um, that I suppose are from animals, but you can see the bloodied ribs. They're obviously, you know, dead body parts. Um, And they're behind him in sort of an angel wing pattern. It's very creepy. Um, This was the first one that I saw, and I was just so, like, turned off by it if my first reaction was like a very visceral very negative like nope don't like this not a fan but you know all these years later I still like can see this like in my mind it's it definitely made an impression you know and I feel like you know that's the point of art the the original painting by Velasquez is a very typical portrait um you can see the Pope clothed in the traditional papal robes with the red cape Um, and the red hat. He's in a red throne. There's like a velvety curtain in the background. He's staring with a very powerful pointed look. His hands are relaxed, um, and he just looks like a very authoritative figure. Um, This was a painting that Bacon was... He said he had a crush on this painting. Like He said he was obsessed with it. He looked at it time and time again and was incredibly influenced by it. But I think based on the trauma that he dealt with, um, you know, he was abused by his father as a child, and he um, was a homosexual at a time when that was still illegal in a lot of places and definitely illicit. Um, and so he dealt with a lot of trauma in his life, and his life was kind of just filled with debauchery and um, kind of insane. And so his depictions were of art were very ugly. You know, they were depicting the ugly side of life and the pain that he felt and the trauma and the abuse he adored. I mean, I think when you take into account, especially even just like being a homosexual at a time where, I mean, it was illegal, but also, I mean, you don't speak about that. You've got to live, live secretively that, you know, you're using, he's using these, reimagine paintings as a form of like rebellion, I would say. And, you know, taking like the most sacred 
person in like the Catholic faith and distorting it to these creepy figures that, and I mean, I even think titling it figure with meat, like that's almost stripping away any religious connotation that the painting would have once had. I think almost going back to the way that, um, Goya, you know, would, was kind of almost making some type of political statement. I mean, I think that that could be argued here that, you know, he's trying to almost like stick it to the man and, you know, express his probably frustrations with society, um, for not being accepted and having to hide like his identity, dealing with abuse at a young age and having an unstable childhood. God, that, that fucks you up. And I mean, so there's no surprise here that these paintings and this series are twisted and disturbing. Not only did he want to depict the the suffering and the pain and the ugly side of life in reality, um, just, you know, stripping down humans to their raw worst feelings, but the Pope series specifically, I think is probably a commentary on his frustrations with society, maybe with religion and how they would view him as a person. And just, it's a smart commentary, really, um, because these are depictions of popes, but as you said, H, they are kind of stripped of any nobility or authority that they might have. Um, They're not even titled, a lot of them, as a pope. Rather, it's just a figure or a man. Um, The figures, instead of appearing very powerful and authoritative, authoritative often look terrified or agonized or just like they're filled with eternal suffering uh for example in figure with meat which is the one that haunts me the most um it's incredibly dark and the man in the middle is in a chair but it just it appears to be very wooden and very simple rather than a papal throne he's in blue um a simple blue shirt rather than um, the papal robes, but he's still, you can tell it's got the cape and the collar and the hat like Pope Innocent does in Velasquez's painting. Um, And he, instead of having his relaxed hands resting on the arm of the throne, he's gripping them like a white knuckle death grip as if he's terrified or if he's trapped. Um, And then his face, rather than a very pointed, powerful Um, glare out at the viewer. He looks very frightened or deathly or otherworldly. The eyes are blackened. You can't even make them out. The mouth is hung open. And this is very characteristic of Bacon that the mouths are like just constantly in a moan or a wail. And he just looks really terrifying. And what really struck me was the depiction of the carcasses in the back, which in this painting appear as almost some sort of subversion of angel wings. Um, at least that's what it looks like to me. There's one on each side of him, um, but they're bloodied. They're, you can see the ribs. You can see that these are obviously carcasses. Um, and it's likely that he was influenced by Rembrandt, another famous um, figure in art history, um, who painted the slaughtered ox in 1655, which was around the same time as Velasquez. Um, and he was depicting a, an ox carcass for whatever reason. But really to me is, really to me, this is speaking towards not only maybe his frustrations with the Catholic church and how they viewed homosexuality, but also just 
instead of looking at power and authority as a good thing, it's sort of like a prison and they're trapped in it and there's some sort of existential agony. Um, maybe the Pope being the father of the Catholic Church represents his father, his abusive father, and the feelings that he feels towards his father. But it's very intense to look at for sure. And you definitely know that this fellow was going through something when he painted these. Oh, I know. I mean, just his face. I mean, one could argue that he is in like mid scream or, I mean, as you said, like this person, they're not, this is not a human person. I mean, this is not a typical depiction of like a human anymore. The skin is pale and I mean, like ghoul, like I would say. And I mean, you can't even see, there's no, there's just black holes where the eyes should be. And, you know, were in the original painting. And I would say it's either a look of extreme pain or mid scream, or even just like deep shock mm-hmm. on the face. And the hands are, you know, bony and kind of twisted and, you know, just, it's really eerie to look at. And the carcasses hanging above. I mean, it's extremely disturbing. And this was a piece that I was not super familiar with. So I'm glad that you brought this up. Um, but yeah, I mean, you wouldn't honestly, without seeing these two pieces side by side, if you simply saw like figure with meat, you would not be aware that this was supposed to resemble a Pope or a human at some point, you know, this just seems like some twisted depiction from a horror film. I mean, right. Or, you know, a lot of the depictions like we've talked about today of, of hell and demons and ghouls and devils, right. That's how we see them depicted, but it's not often that you see that supposedly the most pious man in the world, you know, the head of the church, the one who's supposed to represent all things good depicted as the demonic things that just the direct opposite of what he's supposed to represent within the faith. And so it's incredibly interesting. Um, Bacon as a gay man who was probably, you know, viewed as someone religious, as someone who was damned as someone who's going to hell, you know, perhaps he's taking out those frustrations. And, you know, to me, this, this is an image of damnation of a man who is damned and for it to be the Pope is just, I mean, that's a complex thing to unpack there. And and it's, it's hard to kind of understand exactly what he was feeling, but he made a lot of these Pope paintings. And what's really interesting about it is the fact that there are all of these like twisted depictions of the Pope. I mean, you could argue they're blasphemous. You could argue that it's out of hatred for the church, he loved the original painting um, for whatever reason. He was just fascinated by the painting of Pope Innocent the Tenth, um, and just painted it time and time again. And he had a lot of reverence for it. In fact, when he was in the area and could go see the original painting, he famously refused to because he was embarrassed that he had done like these quote unquote silly little, you know, variations of this revered painting. So it is weird that he had great love for this portrait, but then depicted it with such irreverence, I feel like. Right. I mean, looking at this, this, I would almost think it was like a, 
a way, like I said, like stripping all of the like power and religion from this original painting of the Pope, but and almost in a way of like mocking religion and mocking the Catholic church and, you know, mocking the Pope himself. And it doesn't look like it's a way of like paying your respect or admiration to this painting. That's for sure. No, not at all. But you know, there's also something in it and in, in seeing this figure suffering, he could be mocking them. He could be, you know, trying to depict them as, as terrifying creatures, but there is something just pitiful about it too. You know, you're seeing this, man suffer and it's horrible and you know if this is a commentary on the the prison of power the the trapping someone in authority may feel um or just you know feeling trapped or feeling like you can't escape your fate you feel for the subject of the painting because they're obviously just not having a good time (laughs) they're going through it (laughs) (laughs) so we've kind of gone throughout history a little bit with these different works of art. Um, and I think it's important to end on something that's significantly more modern than a lot of the other works that we've talked about tonight. Um, and this is also a little bit different because while this man does paint canvases, he's also really uh, known and disliked for his performance art. Um, and this is Herman Nietzsche. Um, who's an Austrian artist um, who really started his artistic practice in the 60s, and it still um, has continued on for many years. Um, He's still alive. This man is extremely controversial, um, mostly because of his performative art. So a lot of these performative art pieces are meant to symbolize sacrifice, And his first one was called the Orgies Mystery Theater. um, And it took place in Vienna in um, 1962. And this event was broken up by the police and everybody was forced to leave because it was just so disturbing. He had his friends be the performers and they had the body of a slaughtered lamb that was used. Most of his performances, as I said, involved nudity, and in a lot of them, the entrails of these slaughtered animals are used to kind of cover the, you know, nude body parts, and they're seen ripped open. Um, There was one where it revolved around a man, like, descaling a fish, just in the middle of the space. This is some, this is some dark shit. Like this is, this is type of art that we have not talked about that. It's really only intention is to just like evoke a strong reaction, a strong adverse reaction um, to the public to the point that, you know, it's gotten shut down because it was just so seen as so wrong, which Funny, after his first try at this performance art was shut down, he ultimately ended up purchasing a Catholic church in 1971 that became where he lived and also allowed him to host these art productions um, so that they could not be shut down, um, which I feel like that also is just (laughs) a little bit ironic given what he was doing. It's interesting just how much of 
shock art and um, art that's made to sort of rebel against the norm is kind of blasphemous or sacrilegious. But I think that's mostly because if you take art history throughout all of it, you know, most of it is, at least in the Western world, um, religious art. And so if you're really trying to make a statement, you directly rebel against that, whether you're actually rebelling against the religion itself or not. Um, but it, who does that evoke strong reactions? Sometimes yeah. it involves the law because it's so, yeah, because it's, so, I mean, and this is something that's really, he was among an, a group of artists that, um, sort of started this like performance art movement. And so, you know, this is something that really had not been, that hadn't been done before. And, um, this definitely was meant to directly mock religion. So a little background on him. Um, he was born in Vienna, Austria, and he went to school for graphic design and photography. And right around the time that he graduated, he actually wrote a theatrical script for this first piece, the Orgies Mystery Theater, um, where he detailed out that it would be a way to engage the public in a direct, realistic, and visceral way. And it was described as a ritualistic melodrama and a sort of mock religious ceremony um, where it would incorporate the blood and body of a sacrificially slaughtered animal. So, I mean, this is directly relating to religion and directly kind of trying to highlight I mean, this is probably controversial to even say, but, you know, when we talk about, like, the practice of communion, we think, like, body of Christ, blood of Christ. Well, he's directly trying to relate that here by actually having this animal carcass where these people are participating in this, like, ritual sacrifice around it where, you know, he's showing, like, the blood and the body of this animal and, you know... Mm-hmm. Well, and I think it, at least in some, it was a lamb, you know, yeah. and Jesus yeah. is described as the lamb of God, but, but also in Christianity and otherwise animal sacrifice has been mentioned. Um, and a big part of a lot of religions around the world. Um, sometimes it still is a lot of times it isn't anymore, but you hear about it regardless of what religion you're kind of looking into. Um, and so whether or not you agree with the statements he's making, he is drawing off of religious conventions that mm-hmm. a lot, a lot of art is based on. Yeah. And actually there's a direct quote from Nietzsche where he said, with my work, I want to stir up the audience, the participants of my performances. I want to arouse them by the means of sensual intensity and to bring them an understanding of their existence. Intensity is an awakening into being. He wants the viewers to be part of this. I mean, he wants them to be there. And the only point of this is to get a reaction out of them. and. I don't, I don't see how when it's something like this, I don't think anybody's going to leave this feeling positive about what they just saw. I mean, that's, that's not the point of it. Like we've kind of said, art isn't necessarily meant to give you this like happy, relax. I mean, it's meant to create a reaction and this certainly does it. Well, I think you can draw parallels actually between Bacon's figure with meat 
And um, Nietzsche's Action 122, which occurred in Vienna in 2005, again, another piece of performance art. Um, But during that performance, we see a man who appears to be crucified and he's being, um, looks like he's being stabbed by a bunch of other people with these long spears or rods or something like that. Um, and the man is blindfolded and has blood like running from his mouth all down his neck and chest. Um, which figure with me also had like black running like from his eyes and down his face. Um, but you know, most obviously, uh, Nietzsche's actor, I suppose, is flanked by two carcasses again, or one carcass that's ripped open again in that appearance of wings. And so once again, we see that the best way to subvert some of these artistic norms is to call into these religious motifs, um, Mm -hmm. the blood and the gore and Nietzsche and Bacon were kind of thinking along the same lines there. Yeah. From what I can tell, like the most recent of these um performance art pieces was actually in 2017 so i mean nietzsche is very much still alive i believe he's around 80 at this point um and now a lot of animal rights activists have started stepping in saying that this is not okay um so a lot of like censorship issues have like arisen from this is like whether or not he should be allowed to continue this Um, I will say that all of the animals that are used in it, like they're not actually killing them, but still, I mean, (sighs) it's a lot to take in. And some of these, at least the first one was expected to last days. Like people don't know how long these events are going to last because they just keep going on. And a lot of them just use like blank white backdrops. And then, so it just makes like the red of the blood just stand out even more. And, um, one thing to note is that while these might appear chaotic and messy, they're actually almost extremely choreographed. So, you know, it's like everything is like figured out, like all details to where it knows exactly how it's going to run. So even though it might seem messy and, and real, it's all done in a way it's, it's all done in a very specific, detailed way, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. There is, like, artistic intention behind it. It's not just. Yes. Um, which I will say, I like, I'm vegan. And, and this disturbs me. <laughs> um, also, I'm not necessarily a fan of performance art in general. But I will say, I think, you know, going back to how we started this podcast, talking about art, um, comforting the disturbed, disturbing the comfortable, any time that art seems to be getting too stuck in a convention and and just following a certain level of conformity, um, I think there's a group of artists that comes around and just turns it on his head. And sometimes people appreciate that. And sometimes people are deeply offended by that and try to stop it. But it's the nature of art to push the boundaries, to encourage people to think critically about the world that they live in, because that's what art is. I mean, that's what any creative endeavor is, is trying to find meaning and why we're here, what we're doing, um, speaking towards what we see happening in society, the political issues of the day, um, just, you know, the human condition and what that means. That's what art is exploring. And that's what it's always been exploring you know, it's, it's meant to be thought provoking, even if those thoughts are 
of anger and sadness and outrage. We've seen now from the 1500s all the way into present day how people are using art to disturb, to show struggle and pain, to speak to the harsher side of reality and the human condition. And if you wanted spooky art, I mean, I think this is spooky art. We're we're kicking off October with a bang. Uh, personally, I'm one of those people that likes October because of like pumpkin patches and Charlie Brown and like, I'm not the one that's like watching horror movies and like going to haunted houses and stuff. H is, H is. I am, I am. Um, but you know what? Like it's spooky season. This shit is spooky. Um, in fact, I think we'll put a trigger warning before our images um, and before our episode, just because, like, if you're triggered by blood or animal carcasses or um, ghoulish or depictions of real life disasters and shit, um, this is probably not the episode to listen to. But you know what? It very much suits Halloween. I think we've um, probably evoked a lot of questions, a lot of critical thinking is going to occur after they listen to this. What is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of art? Why do we depict these things? Yeah. Is it worthwhile to do? Yeah. Why would you ever paint, draw, create any of these things? Like what's the point behind it? And how, I mean, where did this come from? Like, where did the thoughts behind this come from? Why, why was this the reason that people were inspired to create art regarding these dark topics. Let us know your thoughts on the works that we spoke about today. If there's a work that you think fits in with this that we didn't talk about, message us about it on Instagram. You can also email us at gothicgirlspod at gmail.com. We want to hear from you guys. This is a discussion. Art is always a discussion. Um, and we're, we just want to start it and foster it. But we ultimately want to hear from you guys. Um, we won't stay quite as morbid and macabre. Next week we'll talk about burial architecture, which, again, fits spooky season. But we can go into crypts, catacombs, mausoleums, why they were built the way they were built the aesthetic appeal of them, the functional purpose of them, how different cultures approached that from tunnels that are lined with the bones of skeletons, bodies long, long passed on, um, pyramids and mummies. Um, You know, Nicolas Cage has a pyramid that he has like purchased for himself for his death. So it's not something that's um, in ancient history. Exactly. Um, There's a lot of interesting things to talk about. So let's talk about it and we'll cool off a little bit from the blood and guts and gore. How about that? I mean, this is is where I thrive, but I suppose I can do that (laughs) because I am also extremely interested in burial architecture, even up into more modern takes on it with mausoleums and, you know, raised 
gravestones and graves like in New Orleans and everything. So it'll be interesting, but we will walk you through the history up until the present of all things burial architecture next week. Yeah. If you've enjoyed our previous episodes or you've enjoyed this episode, or maybe you didn't enjoy this episode, but you know, we've got a lot more to say and we want the chance to say it. So we would really appreciate everybody following us on Instagram at Gothic Girls Pod. We have a Facebook page, Gothic Girls Podcast. As we said, we have an email address where you're more than welcome to email in any ideas, questions, concerns art that you'd like us to cover. We'd love to hear from you. We're available on Apple podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Um, and we would greatly appreciate if you left us a five-star rating. We're still new. We're still babies to the podcast game. We're still trying to dip our toes in. So we are. And you know, if you think we're worth five stars, we would so much appreciate you clicking that five-star button on Apple Podcasts. If you don't think we're worth five stars, keep that shit to yourself. You can send us a a nicely worded email. We're trying. We're we're figuring it out. You know, also, if you want to leave us a five-star rating and a comment, these girls are the funniest, most entertaining bitches I've ever heard in my whole life. You're welcome to leave that. I never thought I was interested in art and architecture until these ladies came along. My mind is blown at how exciting art and architecture is. I would have never, ever, ever listened to it. But these ladies have just enlightened me. We'd love to hear that. I mean, just not to put words in your mouth. I mean, you know, but we accept all forms of flattery and hyping up. Uh, So just... Lay it on us. Uh, there is no such thing. <laughs> Lay the really positive things on us. And like I said, if you've got something negative to say, either keep that shit to yourself or email us privately at <laughs> gothicgirlspod at gmail.com. Don't post that to our social media. Don't cloud everybody else's judgment of us before they before you've even had a chance to thrive. It's 2020. Let's all give each other a little bit of grace. But you know what? I think... I think we've covered some interesting topics so far. You know, we've started in prehistory, gave you an introduction to art and architecture. Now we're jumping into spooky season because it's October and you have to. But we have so many interesting topics to cover. Maybe you are more interested in the pleasant and the beautiful and the happy in art and the romantic in art. Because I'll tell you one thing, like, that's my favorite. Sure, it's basic. But I love that shit. I eat it up. And so we will get right back into that. The beautiful and the happy and the sweet. But, you know, we're just, uh, if that's not your thing, we have something for everybody. So keep coming along on this journey with us. I really think you'll grow to love us. (laughs) XOXO. Gothic Gothic girls. girls.